grace has a leveling effect. It shows us that we're all equal. That's when racism melts. When a church preaches the grace of God like this church, what a diverse group. Why? Because racism says I'm better than you. But when you understand grace, you understand the ground is level at the cross. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is senior pastor at Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. We're in Romans 6, verses 3 to 11, in a message entitled, How to Really Change. Pastor Brogy has been looking at the change that comes about when the Holy Spirit indwells the life of a new believer. But as we pick up, he emphasizes the fact that salvation is exclusively an act of God apart from any works on our part. This truth is contrary to what some are teaching that baptism is a prerequisite to salvation. So when Paul says here in verse 3, that you were baptized into Christ Jesus, please understand there's no water here. The simplest definition of a Christian in the New Testament is the word in Christ, the phrase in Christ. All the way through Ephesians 1, it says the believer is in Christ. If this Bible is me and this watch is, if this Bible is Christ and this watch is me, I am in Christ this morning. So when God sees Carl Brogy, he doesn't see the watch, he sees Christ's righteousness. And that's why in the New Testament, every Christian, even the weakest ones, are called saints. Because again, it speaks of our position. And this morning, you're either in Christ, been declared, justified as righteous, or you're outside of Christ in your own sin and impurity. And if Christ finds you that way at death or at his return, you will become forever that way in the place of judgment. And so it's not water that puts you into Christ. It is the Spirit of God that puts you into Christ. Put down next to verse 3, if you would, in the margin, 1 Corinthians 12, 13. 1 Corinthians 12, 13, let me read it to you. For by one Spirit, we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, all were made to drink of one Spirit. This is called the baptism of the Spirit. And again, every Christian has had it. Every Christian has been baptized with the Spirit. In early Pentecostalism, they wrongly taught that first you're saved and later you get the Holy Spirit. No, that's not true. The epistles are very clear. That was true in Acts in the upper room because the Holy Spirit had not yet been given. But by the time you come to the epistles, the moment you believe, you receive the Holy Spirit. So when we come to the eighth chapter, he says, if you don't have the Holy Spirit, you're not even saved. You're not one of his. And if you know anything about the Corinthian church, again, the Pentecostals would say, well, you reach this super place of spirituality, and then you get the baptism of the Holy Spirit. If you know anything about the Christian church in Corinth, it wasn't a very healthy church. There was a lot of Christians that were marked by carnality and worldliness. And yet he says, we were all baptized, done deal, past tense, into one body. And so the Holy Spirit of God is the one who identifies you into the body of Christ. Now many times in Scripture, baptism has nothing to do with water. John the Baptist will speak of the baptism of fire, which is a baptism of judgment in the context. And he'll also speak of the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which is a baptism of salvation, and you're in one of those two baptisms. 
You are either by nature still a child of God, so that John 3 can say, he who believes has life. He who does not believe, the wrath of God abides upon him. And if he dies in that state, he experiences the baptism of fire, or you've had the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which Christ gives when you believe. And so many times, water is not even in view. But I think most of you understand that neither a thimbleful or a tankful or an oceanful can ever wash away sin. In Matthew 3.15, we're told that baptism is a work of righteousness. And in Titus chapter 3 and verse 5, it says we're saved not by works done in righteousness, but according to his mercy. Uh, 1 Corinthians 1.15 says the gospel is that Christ died, was buried, and was raised. Three words summarize the gospel, death, burial, and resurrection. And in 1 Corinthians 1.17, Paul says, Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel which clearly separates baptism from the gospel. That's important because as we studied in Romans 1.16, the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Now, notice Romans 6.3. Not only have we been baptized into Christ Jesus, but in addition, we've been baptized into his death. Of course, the death he's referring to here is the death of Christ on Calvary. Our baptism into Christ's death, took place the moment we received him as our Savior. The Spirit of God made us members of his body. And so the New Testament argues that what is true of the Lord Jesus is true of the believer. That you are totally identified with Jesus Christ. Now, if you go to Jerusalem, and we were there not long ago, uh, you'll see all kinds of religious sites and there in Israel, one famous site is along the Jordan River where people get baptized. And we baptized several people there in our last trip to Israel. If you bring that picture up, uh, this is a wall called the Wall of Life. And on it, there at the Jordan River, they have Romans 6.4. Quoted in language after language after language. All the languages of the world. And people come and they read their languages. Now that verse means different things to different people. To Roman Catholics, to the Church of Christ, to the disciples of Christ, to the Christian church denomination. It's a salvation verse. To other people, it's symbolic of, of their spirit baptism as seen in water baptism. But the verse has no water in it whatsoever. It's a good verse, and it's not a bad verse to quote at baptism, because water baptism by immersion, and again, only immersion can picture death, burial, and resurrection. If you were sprinkled, you weren't baptized. If I die, I hope the elders won't drag me out into the field and sprinkle a little soil over me. I want them to put me six feet under. Only immersion can picture death and resurrection. And so, when Christ died, you died. When Christ was buried, you were buried. When Christ was raised, you were raised. In fact, in Ephesians chapter 2, it has you seated with Christ in the heavenly places. Why? Because as a member of his body, brought you, brought into that body when you believed by the Holy Spirit, you were linked inseparably to Christ. Everything that is true of him is true of you. And so there's no water in this. And I, I spend the time on it because the verse is abused all the time. And sometimes our military will leave and they'll call me and they'll say, Pastor, I'm in 
such and such a city and I went to such and such a church. And sometimes the name gives it away. Church of Christ, Disciples of Christ, such and such Christian church. Not always. There's exceptions to the rule. And we'll go online together and we'll look at their doctrinal statement. And when on their doctrinal statement for salvation... They have verses like Romans 6, 4 or Acts 2, 38. Then I know they're teaching salvation by baptism. Baptism cannot wash away sin. That's the Galatian era. People say, well, repent, believe, confess, be baptized. That's what they'll say the plan of salvation is. And so if you don't meet that last one, baptized, then you're not saved. That's heresy. That's the Galatian era. That's what Paul dealt with in the Galatian church where they said it was not enough to believe on Christ and Christ alone. In addition, you have to do this one work. You have to be circumcised. People do the same thing today. They had just one work, baptism. And the Bible is clear. God either saves you all alone, all by himself, without any help from you, or he does not save you at all. And so we read here in verse 4, keep reading. Therefore, we have been buried with him, through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. Now remember, there are three tenses to salvation in the New Testament. I've been saved in the past from the penalty of sin. That's called what? Justification. I am being saved in the presence from the power of sin. What's that called? Sanctification. I will be saved when I get my glorified body from the very presence of sin. What's that called? Glorification. So between the past point and the future point, there's this process called sanctification where God is making us like the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Paul wants us to understand that right now, in the present, God wants you to be saved from sin's power, from sin's control. That we, as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, that we too might walk in newness of life. Now, there are two different words in the Greek New Testament that are translated new. One is new in terms of time, like a new day. The other word new, used here in this verse, is new in terms of character or in terms of quality. And so the Bible teaches that when you get saved, you get a new heart. That you are a new creation, 2 Corinthians 5. That you are a new creature, Galatians 6 that you have a new self, Ephesians 4, and in this verse, that you can walk in newness of life. When you get saved, God doesn't simply give you a brand new start. He gives you a brand new life so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. He further explains here in verse 5, for if we have become united with him in in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. This verse is telling me why we can walk in this newness of life. If we are one with the Lord Jesus Christ, identified with him in his death, then it is equally true that we are one with him, identified in his resurrection. Now, of course, before you can have new life, you have to experience death. And if there's never been a point in your life where this world, in all of its wickedness and sin, has become distasteful to you, then you will never find new life. It's not those who are well that need a doctor, but those that are sick. Until you see that your sin is offensive, you don't need Christ, like Joel Osteen will tell you, so you can be a happier, 
healthier, wealthier person. You need Christ because your sin, like my sin, is an absolute offense to a holy God. So much so that by nature we're children of wrath, that the wrath of God is set upon us because of God's holy righteousness. And until there is a conviction of sin, where you see that there's a real, genuine problem, you will never come to Christ for this new life. But if you have, if we have become united with Him in the likeness of His death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of His resurrection. And then he goes on to proceed exactly what he means by that. In verses 6 and 7, he'll speak of the significance of Christ's death. In verses 8 and 9, the significance of his resurrection. And then in verses 10 and 11, he's going to bleed the two together. So follow carefully. Look at verse 6. Knowing this, there it is again. He's not talking about feeling. He's talking about something we must know. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him. Now, in the margin of the New American Standard, if you'll look at it, if you have marginal notes, or if you're using the King James, it's in the body of the text. It doesn't say our old self was crucified with him, but our old man. You see it there? Our old man was crucified with him. And our old man or our old self describes who we were in Adam before we were saved. He is not, when he speaks about your old man, he's not talking about your daddy. He's, he's talking about what you were before you were saved. Now, the newer translations say old self because they want you to understand that this is being used generically. Have you ever thought about your old man or some of you ladies about your old w woman? Uh, let me tell you about your old man, how the Bible describes it. The Bible teaches that your old man is a dumb old man. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul says that a natural man, and that's the way you come into this world, it's the way you naturally are, physically alive, but spiritually dead. The natural man does not understand the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. He cannot understand them. He can't appraise them because they're spiritually appraised. And so apart from hearing the plan of salvation, you can't, for the most part, read the Bible and really embrace it. And that's why when a man's lost and he reads the Bible and he reads some of the stuff in it, it's just sheer folly to him. But when he gets saved and he's born again, he has a new set of eyes in which to see and to understand the Bible. So he's a dumb old man. Not only is he a dumb old man, he's a dirty old man. In 1 John chapter 2, it says, do not love the world nor the things that are in the world because all that's in the world, the lust of the flesh, <clears throat> the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but from the world and the world is passing away. And so your old man, your old self just loves the things of the world. It loves sin. It loves filth. And as we talked about a few weeks ago, it's not getting cleaner. It's getting dirtier. It gets more and more depraved in its expressions as you walk through this life. But not only is it a dumb old man and a dirty old man, the Bible teaches it is a deceitful old man. The flesh, the sin nature, your old man, without any help from the devil, is very, very creative. Very often we say, the devil made me do it. The devil had nothing to do with it. You're carried away. You're enticed, the Bible says, by your own lust. And so very often, this deceitful, fallen, sinful nature will tempt you, will convince you that you are missing out, and it will lure you into sin. 
And so God wants us to understand that this dumb, dirty, deceptive old man was crucified with Christ. Knowing this, look at verse 6, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we should no longer be slaves to sin. Now let's ask a very important question here, verse 6. What does he mean when he says our body of sin, that is our sin-dominated body, was done away with? Or as the King James puts it, was destroyed. Now, both done away with or destroyed can be misunderstood if you don't read it in the context of Romans 6. If you look in the margin of the New American Standard, it says it was made powerless. That's what the word means. If you were reading the uh, English Standard Version, it says our body of sin might be brought to nothing. And that's good, done away with, made powerless, brought to nothing. Because you see, your sin nature, as we discussed last week, does not dissolve when you get saved. Again, there are those folks who say the sin nature is eradicated. There's websites all over the internet teaching that. No, it's not eradicated. They say, well, I don't sin, I just make mistakes. Well, God says you sin. If we say we've not sinned, we're deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. We make him a liar and his word is not in us. And so Paul wants us to understand that our sin nature has been defeated. It's been disabled. It's been deprived. God rendered the Adamic nature as powerless at the cross. It was made powerless, as the margin here of the NAS says. It was abolished, as the new translation that Southern Baptists put out renders it. It was brought to nothing, or as in the King James, it was destroyed. Now, it's an interesting word. This word made powerless, destroyed, brought to nothing, kartargeo, never means annihilated in the scripture. It just means rendered insignificant. Let me give you an illustration from the Bible itself. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul is describing the makeup of a typical church. And he says, for consider your calling brethren, that there are not many wise among you, not many mighty, there are not many noble, He says, God has made the foolish things. Uh, God has chosen the foolish things of this world. He he has not chosen the wise things of this world, the noble things of this world. Now, he doesn't say there's not any mighty, any noble, any wise. He just says there's not many. And when you look at the complexion of a true Bible-believing church, typically, it is not filled with all the mighty uppity-ups, of this world. It's not because God is a respecter of person and doesn't love rich people or famous people. He loves everyone. But very often people in their fame and their notoriety and their wealth and their position get so caught up in it, they think they're a big shot and they don't need God. That's why Jesus says it's harder for a rich man to get into the kingdom of God than it is for a camel to go through the eye, literally Luke says, a surgical needle. They said, then how can anyone be saved? Well, with God, all things are possible. And so he says, God has chosen the base things of the world and the despised things of the world. God has chosen the things that are not so that he might nullify, there it is, karta ghetto, that he might render inoperative, that he might render insignificant the things that are. And so when a mighty, noble, wealthy person comes to Christ, in God's eyes, he is rendered insignificant. 
just like any of you were rendered significant, whether you're noble or not. Because grace has a leveling effect. It shows us that we're all equal. That's when racism melts. When a church preaches the grace of God like this church, what a diverse group. Why? Because racism says I'm better than you. But when you understand grace, you understand the ground is level at the cross. Let me see if I can illustrate this word, kartageo, made powerless. When my wife and I first got married, I drove her around in my 1972 Volkswagen Bug. It had no air conditioning. We got married in June, a very hot time of the year. It was a hot summer, 1980. One of the hottest on records. Hundreds of people all across America died from heat stroke. The day we got married, it was 104 degrees. We came back from our honeymoon and we had to drive to Colorado to be at a meeting with Campus Crusade for Christ and it was hotter. It was 110 when we left. I get kind of excited about that, you know, man, it's hot, this is great, you know. 113, we're riding through this little hole in the wall town in Tennessee, it's 117 degrees. It was hot. Neither did that car, for that matter, have a gas gauge that was operative. Now, I had a 59 Volkswagen once, and when you ran out of gas in that car, there was a little pedal down on the floor and you could kick it and it hit in the reserve gas tank and you'd go another 30, 40 miles until you hopefully found a gas station. Well, one night, my wife and I are out on a date and she says, don't we need some gas? And I said, no, we're just fine. We're not going to run out of gas. And we went shopping here and there and went to eat. We're heading back home. She says, uh, don't we need to get some gas? I said, honey, we're, we're, we're fine. We're, we're, we're just fine. I know how far this car can go. And we're coming up to the top of the hill and it begins to crest right at the top. We go, and it was dead and I threw it in neutral and we just coasted all the way down that hill right into a 7-Eleven gas station (laughs) isn't it amazing that God gives us these helpmates for the reason he does Jerry Clower used to say ain't God good yes he was good that day now it was chugging along but suddenly it was made inoperative it was cartageo Now, it wasn't done away with, destroyed in the sense that it didn't exist. We're still sitting in it. Think about your sin nature as that car. You're sitting in it, but it's been made inoperative. What's the last thing you want to do with that sin nature? The last thing you want to do is put gas in it. When we come to Romans 13, 14, he'll say, make no provision for the flesh, speaking of the sin nature, in regards to its lusts. You don't feed the sin nature. You now have a choice where you can starve the sin nature. My son living in Boston yesterday sent me an article, and it was entitled WWJB, not WWJD, what would Jesus do, but what would Jesus brew, WWJB. And it's an Episcopal church where The pastor and the music minister were really concerned. Attendance was dropping, very, very small. And so they decided that they would do homebrew. And they began to invite people into the community for a weekly gathering of homebrew. You bring your homebrew, we'll make it together, we'll see whose beer is the best. What would Jesus brew? Now listen, we are to starve the sin nature. And I'm disappointed with Mark Driscoll. I know he has the gospel, and for that I thank God. 
But this national pastor who's now telling young people it's okay to drink. And let me talk to the teenagers for a moment. You go on to the university, and if you choose not to drink, you are going to be an exception to the rule. And people under the name of freedom are going to say, man, we have freedom to drink. Now listen, for years and years, decades, the church taught abstinence. All of a sudden, we're so much more enlightened. I abstained initially as a believer because it had the appearance of evil. It can cause a brother to stumble. And I don't believe with all my heart that in this day it glorifies God. Not to mention that God says not just don't get drunk, but he says don't use strong drink. What's strong drink? It was pure wine that had fermented in the New Testament area. It wasn't whiskey and vodka. So he reads John 2, Mark Driscoll, and God convicts him that he ought to drink. I read John 2, and I'm convicted you shouldn't drink. That's the way it is. It will give you a buzz. And as soon as you have that buzz, you've had too much. Because you are to worship God with your whole heart, mind, and strength, the Bible says. No, they mixed it in Bible times. It was real wine. Sometimes oinosh yayin in the Hebrew can mean new wine, unfermented. Most often it means real wine. And when it was unmixed with water in a five-to-one ratio, it was called strong drink. And God says, apart from giving that to a dying man like you'd give morphine, don't ever touch it. People become alcoholics, if you want to call it that. Why? Because it's addictive. You don't feed the sin nature. You starve it. Now people tell me, well, Brogy, he's legalistic. I hear it often. heard it twice this week. Twice this week. Why don't they come to Community Bible Church? Oh, that pastor didn't believe in drinking. My pastor, he'll sit down and have a glass of wine with me. God bless your pastor. We need to live differently. God has called us to be different from the world. And it's not being like the world that will win the world. It's our distinctiveness from the world that makes us real salt and real light. And Paul wants you to realize that that old sinful nature was made inoperative, but you don't want to put gas in it. You don't want to feed it. He says in verse 7, for he who has died is freed from sin. In other words, we no longer have to be slave to sins. Don't ever say, well, I'll never change. I've always been this way. The moment you begin to think that way, you're like putty in the devil's hands. He has you right where he wants you. No, God wants you to understand you now have a choice. You have been freed from the penalty and the power of sin. Verse 8, now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. Not only hereafter, but now, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. He's reminding us that the power of sin being broken is not some temporary status, but it is a permanent status. And when you feel defeated and down and discouraged, don't forget that this is not some temporary state where God said, well, you can be freed from the power of sin for a month. It is as permanent as the resurrection of Christ as he was raised from the dead never to die again. To listen again to today's study from Romans 6, entitled, How to Really Change, 
Call Search the Scriptures at 877-787-7478 and request program ROM28. You can also listen to it online at searchthescriptures.org or download our Search the Scriptures app from the iTunes Store or Android Marketplace. Tomorrow, Dr. Brogy's wife, Audrey, is in this time slot with her program for women, Mothering from the Heart. And when we return Monday, we'll continue our look at how to really change. Join us then as we search the scriptures.